house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. What's our next move? I might have something for the election. The President of the United States may have gone AWOL from the military. He never even showed up. Those parts of his file they didn't like, they tossed in a wastebasket. Do you have these documents? These really are the holy grail of documents. You've got three hours. We're out of time. Start outputting. Go! Go, go, go! Tonight, we have new information on the President's military service. Here's to a great story. Hey, Mary, these blogs are saying that the memos can be recreated in Microsoft Word. Several experts have raised serious questions. They're going to start an investigation. This is bad. They do not get to do this. They do not get to smack us just for asking the question. They want to talk to your source. No. It's bad. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast whose failure gives a double leg up to Lassa Hallstrom. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations. But for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my co-host, who's just like talking about courage a bunch. It's kind of weird. It's Joe Reed. I was going to say courage, and then you and then you said courage. 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 courage I, I mean, like, I kind of love the Dan Rather courage thing. Like, I like yeah. the succinctness, but like, when you think about it, it's kind of funny. Like, of course it is. What? But, like, that's okay, Dan Rather had... in a nutshell, right? Is that, like, you super respect him as a newsman and as a person, but he's also kind of funny. That That is very true. I mean, he's also, like, cuddly and sweet. Right. Like, if anything that Robert Redford doesn't maybe get in Dan Rather in this movie is, like, the kind of cuddliness of him. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe the movie is trying to be, like, behind the scenes he was a hard-nosed newsman and that kind of thing. And I'm sure he is. Right. But at the same time, there's a reason why he was so loved for so long. And I don't know. I if like we it. we had one, like, meaningful sign-off word on this podcast, oh, what would it be? Oh, interesting. What would it be? Midsommar. <laughs> Midsommar. <laughs> um, uh, I would say Canada. You would say water. Um, yes, exactly. When I say Canada, <laughs> you say water. Canada, water. Canada, water. Um, yes, that's very T A T I Tati in that episode I just watched. Oh, a spookies? No, not a spookies. It was Drag Race where they oh. did the like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two iconic the, television shows the, with characters named Tati. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um. Anyway, we are not here to talk about Los Spookies. Um, we are here to talk about the 2015 movie Truth. Heck yeah. But bef- 
before we get into that, we have some business to attend to. First of which, we still are taking questions for our upcoming mailbag episode. So please be tweeting your questions to us or email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail. Um, our Twitter handle is once again had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Please be sending us any questions you have related to previous Oscar races, previous movies we've discussed, if there was something you felt like we missed that you want to hear our opinion on or if you want to hear the anything about the current oscar race send us your questions we do love to yammer on so yes yeah and uh we are very excited to do that episode for you guys yeah absolutely joseph was this your first time seeing truth or had you seen it before i saw it It, on the big ol' imax at the toronto film festival in 2015 so i love hearing about the movies that people see on the imax at toronto because it's always something random that like you would never truly see in an imax and it's not formatted for imax you're just watching it on a huge screen maybe not at the best resolution yeah but like i famously saw ladybird in in finger quotes right. IMAX. Well, and the thing with TIFF is they'll put stuff in the IMAX that they feel like is a high demand title that they that they need the extra seating for, right? So it's always something with a long ass line and unless you get in there early, you are not getting good seats at the IMAX. So I have just so many tales of like seeing the Danish girl from the third row in IMAX, seeing High Rise from the second row in IMAX, and I'm always just like craning my neck and like lying sort of like fully horizontal in my seat trying to watch these very decidedly not special effecty uh, movies in the IMAX. Truth was a different in that it was later on in the festival and the lines weren't that long and it wasn't really this super buzzy title at at the festival that year there were you know that was the year of room and spotlight and just a whole bunch of other stuff i think beasts of donation was that year anomalisa was that year and so truth kind of was decidedly second tier that was actually the same year as mm-hmm. danish girl um, it would have been la la land that year no, no la la land was the next year i feel like um, the big I feel like the big movie that year was uh, Room. Would that have won the People's Choice? Now I've got to look um, that up. I will look that up. Look I don't up. think it won People's Choice. It might have actually been Spotlight that won. That's actually, that's a good point. Um, but anyway, I remember those movies being like the really, really big ones. And then so Truth was, it wasn't like an empty screening, but it was not one you had to get in line early for. So I had pretty good seats. I got my usual back of the room on the aisle, which the aisle at IMAX is not always the most desirable seat. A lot of people like to sit in the middle because the screen is so big and you get the side view and a lot of people don't like it, but I covet an aisle. So um, I got to Joseph, see Joseph, you were correct. Room won the People's Choice Award that year. I thought so. Spotlight was second runner up. Do you remember Brie Larson like, uh, like outwardly thanked Tiff in her Oscar speech for launching them? Uh, thank you. Thank you first to the Academy. I want to start big because the thing that I love about movie making is how many people it takes to make it. So I want to start first with the Telluride Film Festival, the Toronto Film Festival, who gave us a chance, who gave us a platform first. I'd like to thank A24 for taking this movie into their hands and sharing it with the world. I'd like to thank our director. Um, I don't remember that in her speech, though. Technically, didn't it world premiere at Telluride? Yeah, I think she's. I think she thanked maybe both of them, but I definitely remember her thanking the Toronto Film Festival. It's interesting. I think that What's People's Choice did a lot of, for it. 
I mean, like, we'll get into, like, what it's like to watch that movie today, but, like, all of the talk of Toronto, like, pushing really hard for world premieres this year versus, like, you look at that Toronto Film Festival where Truth was a world premiere and all of those movies that were, like, the buzzier titles that everybody cared about had already played other festivals. I think that was the year where they had the whole, like, yeah, there was that whole, like, soul-searching, like, what has become of the Toronto Film Festival? They don't get world premieres anymore. And I think from there on out i think they tried i think they renewed their effort to really get back in the game and kind of elbow back at telluride and venice in terms of getting the big fall premieres Mm -hmm. but i will say i really not to like get too ahead of ourselves but like i really enjoyed truth at the time i thought it was exactly what i needed in a late week film festival movie which was (laughs) a lot of energy a lot of like you know a little popcorny very much so i wouldn't even say a little popcorny i think it's decidedly popcorny i think its insights and its characterizations are very broad side of the barn but in a way that like i really appreciate i think it's Aaron Sorkin-ish without a lot of Aaron Sorkin's weird hang-ups, but also without mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin's, like, gift it's for Aaron making... It's Aaron Sorkin without cocaine. Yeah. I think it I think it lacks Sorkin's sort of poetry of dialogue, which is a thing I always really love, but it also lacks um, a lot of the more annoying aspects of, like, you can tell, you know, what bugaboo Sorkin was thinking about that day that he wrote yeah, whatever yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, this was written and directed by James Vanderbilt. It was his first directorial, ef- directorial effort. He's most known for, at least most acclaimed for, having written the screenplay for Zodiac, for David Fincher's Zodiac. But he's written, like, actually a whole bunch of... Of junky... Yeah, his, like, his filmography is movies? very interesting, to the point where I assumed, while looking... Because his filmography... I just, I'll write it down. We'll, we'll, you know, go a little bit out of yeah, order yeah, on this, yeah. but whatever. His first script that ever was produced was Darkness Falls, which was... Um, Like a first weekend of January horror movie, so it's like at least at the time seen as this turd. It's the horror movie about the Tooth Fairy starring Emma Caulfield from Buffy. And I've never seen it, but it's sort of, you know, notorious for being that. Then he wrote the script for Basic, which was the John McTiernan movie with John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson that I did not see. He wrote the screenplay for The Rundown, which I also haven't seen, Um, but... I remember it being pretty well regarded. It's a Peter Berg movie starring The Rock and Sean William Scott and Rosario Dawson. That I remember being like people being like, "Oh yeah, the rundown's really good." And then came Zodiac, which was like a really big, you know, really big deal. And then he ended up also writing the screenplay for The Amazing Spider-Man or at least like a screenplay for The Amazing Spider-Man. And right. that was one where he, One of the million versions of that screenplay that made it to the screen. Well, he was supposedly attached to write the screenplay for Spider-Man 4, which was going to be the fourth Raimi Spider-Man. Like, initially, mm-hmm. Raimi was going to do a fourth one, and then that fell through, and when they picked it up again as The Amazing Spider-Man and recast it and had Mark Webb direct it, they sort of kept Vanderbilt on, and he ends up with a screenplay credit on that and a story by credit on Amazing Spider-Man 2. But he's also done White House Down. He wrote the script for Independence Day Resurges. And when I say wrote the script, I mean, like, is a credited screenwriter. So, like, a lot of these movies, yeah, yeah, who yeah. knows what the process is? Who knows knows what the process was on like the meg which was like a 20-year development do you know what i mean so exactly 
um, there's a lot of which gave me the impression that Vanderbilt is this sort of studio guy who you hire out to like you know work on a script of some big studio product that has been bouncing around for a while but like with Zodiac at the very least Zodiac like started with him Zodiac's the one that like kind of it promised something with this movie a little bit like I don't think people were even mentioning those other like action movies yeah in regards to like this is James Vanderbilt's debut but, like it was all talk about Zodiac which is like essentially procedural with like depth and pathos to it well, and like that's the expectation for this movie and the other thing was with Zodiac it. though is like he was the prime mover behind that like he was the one who read Grace Smith's book and was like I want to write a movie about the Zodiac and like it was Fincher who came on late in that process because Fincher had been trying to make shit I just recently read this part where like Fincher had been trying to make a different movie and sort of got oh it was um the Black Dahlia he was initially trying to make the the Black Dahlia movie that Brian De Palma ended up making. And then he sort of went away from that. And I remember Zodiac being like a very long in development movie. And even like after Fincher had gone on it, like I remember it being sort yeah. of, it was, I think, on a schedule at one point in 2006. It, yeah, it was pushed back. And then like, because it was expected to be an Oscar movie, and then they pushed it back to February, and then people forgot about it. Yeah. Zodiac is so good. I, honestly, it's one of the like top five most underappreciated at the time movies were like, you look back now and you're just like, with David Fincher directing and with the stars that it had, it's wild that that movie, A, didn't, I mean, it did okay financially, as I recall, right? Um, no, actually, no, it was it a bomb because it's. I mean, it's a three-hour movie, and yeah. they released it in. Fe- it's like serious, incredibly grim, and they released it in February, right? I thought it was no, it was, it was like it was, February or March. It was the very end of February, uh, very end of February, early March. You're right. Um, yeah, and I think all like that was one where almost immediately, maybe like a year or two after, people started to really come around on it, and yeah. Um, and then Fincher. I, mean, I remember seeing it in the theater and half of the theater leaving. Yeah, and then Fincher became an Oscar sort of loved director the year after with Benjamin Button, and then Robert Downey Jr. had his career resurgence <laughs> the very next year with Iron Man. And you know what I mean? So it's like all of this yeah. stuff where it's just like it was the year ahead on so much stuff, and now it's so easy to look back at Zodiac and being like, "Wow, what a perfect movie!" It's wild that it didn't. You know, in 2007 is a pretty For, good like year. all of its elements too. Like you mentioned Robert Downey Jr., but also like you could imagine Mark Ruffalo being more appreciated if like yeah, that we had known what was what Zodiac was at the time, yeah. or appreciated for what it was. That, Jake Gyllenhaal. That movie also film debut for June Diane Raphael. So, mm-hmm. there's a visual effects reel out there for Zodiac that like completely blows my mind that a lot of those environments were CGI'd. That's interesting. And you'd never know it. No, it doesn't look it at all. That's why... Have we talked about my paranoid theory? We're getting a little off base before we get into it, but it all comes from Zodiac, which is James Vanderbilt. It's tethered. It's tethered. Yeah. Have we talked about why my like most wild like tinfoil hat theory about a David Fincher movie no. and like his use of CGI? No. My my crazy crackpot theory is that Ben Affleck's penis in Gone Girl is fake. I wouldn't be shocked. And by that, that it is like inscrutable 
David Fincher CGI. <laughs> and and that it's And I feel that way all because if you find that real for Zodiac, the visual effects real and how they shot those like crime scene scenes yeah. and how much CGI they used that is why I, I will help spread this is not real. I will help spread this conspiracy theory because I think it's very plausible that that's correct. Honestly, I think it fits with I think it gives, you know, the movie one other little bit of like commercial like pop to it and yeah, I totally be- believe that. I will I will spread those spread those rumors around the land. <laughs> did you also ben know Alex's penis is fake? <laughs> For the second time by the way on this podcast, I'm going to say did you also know that he's a Vanderbilt? But did you know that like James Vanderbilt is a Vanderbilt? No. So related to as we had previously mentioned on this podcast, Timothy Oliphant is a Vanderbilt, which I hadn't realized. We are the Illuminati up. of Vanderbilt. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, so it's it's Anderson Cooper, James Vanderbilt, and Timothy Oliphant are all at family reunions talking about their mounds and mounds of money that they have generationally. So congratulations. I just imagine Anderson Cooper going up to James Vanderbilt and being like, you know, truth deserved a better shot. Honestly, it, I would love to hear what Anderson Cooper reunion. says about his cousin James Vanderbilt's movie, Truth. Be fascinating. It's such a meat and potatoes movie. It's the one movie that I came back from Toronto that year and t- I like was talking to my parents and I'm like, see this movie, you will love it. And you know what? They did. It, they did. Yes. I mean, like they, along with me, and I think I saw this movie with my grandmother. We are like 10 percent of this movie's box office take. Oh, because this movie was a bomb. Oh, you saw it in the theater. Yes. You are doing the Lord's work. My parents do not see movies in the theater, so they saw it. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Well after. <laughs> they saw it on VOD. They paid for it still, but they saw it on VOD. Um, no, it's the Before perfect... we get into it, though. Yes, yes. Because it, it sounds like we are about to pivot into the film itself instead of our usual nonsense. Yes. Joseph, would you like to give our lovely listeners a 60-second plot description? Why don't I do that? Ugh. Do you okay. want to give the boilerplate before I get into the 60-second? Uh, yeah. So, Truth, um, as we mentioned, is written and directed by James Vanderbilt. It was adapted from a memoir by Mary Mapes, who is the subject of the film. Kate Blanchett plays Mary Mapes. It's also, as we mentioned, Robert Redford is playing Dan Rather. But there's also another huge cast in this movie. You have Topher Grace, Elizabeth Moss, Dennis Quinn. Bruce Greenwood, uh, Dermot Mulroney, uh, and John Benjamin Hickey, and then a whole bunch of other people. The movie, as we mentioned, was a world premiere at that year's Toronto Film Festival, uh, then opened in October, October 16th Limited, and then it went wide Halloween weekend. Yes. And of course, as we I feel like we've always talked about, like, Halloween weekends for movies that bomb, like... Good luck to you, whatever movie yeah. is opening at Halloween and has Oscar in their sights. Mary Mapes, of course, was the diminutive uh, uh, servant house servant from the David Lynch film Dune, so you can clearly see why she became a investigative news producer. Indeed. It's a Dune joke. But Joseph. It's a Dune joke for all my Dune friends out there. Mapes. <laughs> she's, a, she's a weird little person. Played by Linda Hunt right. in, uh, in Dune. Cool. Narrated by Virginia Madsen. I'm going to do a supercut of all the times you like pausing for a very long time and then being like, cool, Joe on one of his other weirdo fucker tangents. Just because you are faster to say cool on my tangents does not. I make make the effort to make it seem like I'm interested. (laughs) Sometimes. 
sometimes. Listen. Um, anyway, yes. we, we are not here to bicker. We're not here to talk about Dune. We're here God to have a 60-second plot description of truth. <sighs> you know, all right, I'm going to do bad at this because there's a lot of stuff here, but I will manage. There's a lot to talk about with Dune. There's so much incorporated with Dune. <laughs> I get it. That is necessary. What if you're like 60 plot. second begins now and I'm just like Arrakis is a desert planet and <laughs> yeah. the only source of the spice <laughs> in the entire known <laughs> universe. Um, I will allow it if you do your best Virginia Madsen impersonation. <laughs> oh man. I am the, the daughter of the Emperor Shaddam IV. Yeah. Please put in a sound drop of I like to think about the grape. I like to think about the people who grew the grape. How many of them must have already died? But it's that, but it's like her face superimposed over the grape, like in the beginning of Dune. We just can't get it together this episode. Sonoma Um, County, Desert Planet. Okay. Joseph, your 60 second plot description of truth starts now okay kate blanchett plays cbs news pro- uh, producer mary mapes who's working on a 60 minute story about george w bush's service in the texas air national guard during the vietnam war this is all during the run-up to the 2004 presidential election she's working with uh dan rather of cbs evening news but also he works for 60 minutes sort of moonlights with them that is played by robert redford their team includes dennis quaid and elizabeth moss and topher grace they're a crack team they are working on the story that says that Bush's uh, service in the Texas Air National Guard was fraudulent, that he got out of it due to his connections, and they get these sources from this ex-military guy played by Stacy Keach, who is sort of a whistleblower informant guy, and they go on air with it, and it's a whole big story, and then almost immediately seconds. after, the documents come under question, they think they are fraudulent, and the White House comes, cracks down on CBS and gets them to disavow the story, and she loses her job, and, and Dan Rather gets fired from CBS and all sorts of stuff. And then they fire everyone else. Too. There's a lot of technically speaking, they only fired Mary Mapes, and then everybody else was everybody else resigned or left of their own right, their own accord. Was que- requested to right. resign, forced out. Everybody was forced out, including yeah. Topher Grace, who gave the finger on his way out the door. Which yeah. is weird because I don't think he was ever like an employee of CBS, right? He was like part of her team but i almost feel like he was operating as an independent contractor right i don't know oh yes i forgot to tell you the spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe a desolate dry planet with vast deserts hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the fremen who have long held a prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. And we're back from a commercial break. We'd like to thank our sponsors. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We've got we've having a little bit of network connectivity issues today. Yeah, listen, listeners, if this has not been stitched over properly, just know that we have gone to commercial break and we're immediately screaming at our producers That's true. and swearing while you at home were listening to an ad for, I don't know, Ovaltine and uh, that Revenge of the Sith or something. 
beautiful. Love it. I'll find something. I'll find some good commercial. Yeah. I'll maybe throw like a shitty trailer in there or something like that. That yeah. would be funny. I'm the one. I'm the Mary Mapes between the two of us who was back here like s- screaming expletives and pounding vodka. So here's the. Let's start with Mary Mapes then. Because I think one of the interesting things about this movie is the characterization of Mapes and also the performance of Blanchett. I think Blanchett yes. is great. I think Blanchett is great fun. I think at times. The Mapes character is a weakness of the movie because it, the screenplay, Vanderbilt's screenplay, really insists on drawing these big, like, big fat marker lines from her motivations in the film to shit with her father. And it's just mm-hmm. like, man, makes, tries to make sure that we all know that her relationship is rather, is with Dan Rather, is a surrogate father-daughter relationship because she has a bad relationship with her dad. And... And there's also just, like, this degree to which, like, her characterization functions as the movie's thesis statement in a way that's a little clunky. Yes. But still enjoyable to watch. It doesn't take away the enjoyment of the movie. I think it's what what keeps the movie from being great. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's this movie is is watchable and fun, and I think it should be on television a lot more often than it is. It's one of those, like, I've been watching... It'd be a great TNT movie. I've been watching Molly's Game on the reg once a week at least since it's come on HBO. It is on all the time. Do you turn and it off when Kevin Costner comes on? No, but I kind so of you mute. can watch I the kind movie of, while it's good. I kind of mute it and sort of wait till it gets past that part because that is not my favorite part. Also, the part where Idris Elba goes on that like ten minute monologue in the deposition about what a good person Molly is, and he's struggling so mightily with the accent on top of those reams and reams of Sorkin-y dialogue, and I'm just like, yeah. buddy, I love you. It's <laughs> not happening for you today. And it's still very watchable. But like Molly's Game is another one of those movies where it's like, you can see the parts where it's sort of being held down from being a great movie, mm-hmm. but oh man, is it good. And oh man, is it watchable. And like, I could watch that movie once a day and I basically like almost have been. True. I mean, yes, truth, and truth is could be very much that. And I think the first time I saw it, I was much more encumbered by the like things that keep it from being great and like made me be harder on it. And maybe that's what, some critics did as well and that like there is a lot to this movie where people essentially become not just talking heads for like you know ideological points of view like i wouldn't even say that they're necessarily political ones but also just like the business of explaining this case to us or like this like um research that they're doing and all of the like details of george w bush and his service i think it would be maybe it doesn't need to explain those things to us but the movie definitely thinks that it does for us to be able to be invested in this story i think either that or it needs to get even wonkier and really like almost like not quite big short it for us but like really break down a lot of, like, the news business and the system of checks and and fact-checking and mm-hmm. doubling over our, you know, making sure and that also, all the lines like, are crossed and all that kind of stuff in the process of a story going from nothing, from a hunch, from a tip to um, on the air. Do you know what I mean? Because that process yes. is the most interesting stuff. And also, like, where this occurred in the, like, 
shifting landscape of what journalistic research looked like because like yeah the one of the things that like hurt this case was the fact that like they would have had to have researched things that they would never do regularly but it's like like the the thing about all of the fonts and all of that right. like would right. they have done that 5 years prior to this happening probably not but now it's something that would be regularly vetted in like a, a specifically a digital era not to well, say and that it's, this wasn't I at was, that time but it wasn't at the place where it was like devalidating or invalidating cases, you know? Right. It's interesting to me how, like, all of this, all of that effort goes into making this story, and it goes on the air, and then it gets debunked, like, the next day by a blogger, and it's just like, maybe at some point we need to, because, like, nobody will nitpick a thing to fucking death like the internet, right? And so, at some point, and I'm hoping that this is the case, like, these newsrooms decided to utilize that, and maybe, like, you find somebody who's on, like, Reddit or whatever, and puts them to the case of like, all right, debunk this story for us. Do you yeah, know what, I mean? what like, you did for fun on the internet is now your paycheck. Yeah. It also reminds me, you weren't a newsroom watcher, were you? I was not. Okay, so the newsroom, objectively, again, not a great show. And often a really excruciatingly bad show to watch. But it hit a stride for a while. And season two had this whole season-long storyline where essentially this happened to them. Where they went to air with a story about sarin gas being used in uh, the Middle East by the United States. And it ends up being a hoax. And they end up getting, like, you know, called out onto the carpet for it. And they went through that process of, like, most of the season was through that process of, like, here's how we checked the story. And here's what we did. We're, like, we set up a team that was in opposition. And we tried to, like, tear the story down and yada, yada, yada. And, like, it's the newsroom, so it's still very sort of you know, Sorkin-y, and there are shortcuts to make it good TV. But it was... I think that story was very, very much inspired by the the Rather story and um, what happened with there and how, essentially, like, his career as a network newsman was ended by this thing. What, what Truth does that I think is interesting is it doesn't fully ever concede the point. It doesn't ever fully even concede that the documents were fake. Like they have mm-hmm. the Blanchett has this monologue right towards the end when she's in front of the investigation tribunal or whatever the hell. It's an incredible it. monologue. But where she uh, I mean she's I like, wouldn't what someone would have to they... do to fake this. And, yeah. Yeah. What it, someone would have to do to like I'm, I guess I'm struggling. It, like, it clearly is probably... Like, it doesn't accept that the content of the document isn't true. Right. But it says, like, even if this is not the document, like, the extent of, like, personality traits and, like, yes. military functions... I think what the movie like, is trying to somebody say... Somebody would have to know what they're faking. Right. What the movie is trying to say, its big thesis is, we lost the forest for the trees in this particular story because we wanted to and because the White House wanted us wanted us to. And in some ways, it feels like the movie is excusing the... Because we can say, if with a story that was ultimately able to be discredited in this way, they didn't have it. They shouldn't have gone to air with it. And... 
they should have listened to there's a there's a couple points where they mention like a couple of the like um the forgery experts mm-hmm. express their doubts and those doubts are overridden by the other forgery experts who are just like yeah it's fine so ultimately though they went to air with a story that could have that was able to be discredited within a couple days on the internet so they shouldn't have gone to the air with it but i think what truth is trying to say is that um because of this essentially technicality of an error that the White House was able to make enough noise and right-wing media was able to make enough noise about it that we stopped asking the question, which was, did George W. Bush get out of the war in Vietnam because of his connections? And started asking questions about fonts and photocopies, right? Mm -hmm. So... Which is a fair question. And then the Topher Grace monologue, which is like pure, like cheesy goodness as far as I'm concerned, which is basically just like hollering at the the CBS news guy about the corporate um, sort of conflicts of interests and and, and influences between Viacom and the Bush administration and the Viacom had a big thing that they needed Congress to break their way for, and so they wanted to be as deferential to the White House as possible. And it's... None of it is eye-opening. I don't think any of this is just like, oh, wow, there's like, you know, corporate influence in politics and political influence in in news media, and like all... None of this stuff seems surprising, but and it also... some of it, because it's like stating like some things that we already know, it's more about the facts than the ideas that they suggest yeah. to us culturally. So it like lacks a little bit of depth in a way that like while it's watchable, it's never as good as it could be. Like it's and I think because of the fact that it's such red meat and it doesn't really ever give you any kind of new insight that it's mostly it's preaching to the choir and it's telling us what we all sort of already know to be true i think that led a lot of critics to sort of double i think the 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 tendency of film critics to be liberal and left-wing sometimes causes them to be extra harsh on things that they feel like they're being pandered to Mm -hmm. and it's you know, that is what it is. And ultimately, I think truth wasn't always allowed to be... I mean, it's still got decent... It's Rotten Tomato uh, rankings, like 61 or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. It's fine. But I think, ultimately, sometimes there's a guilt for enjoying a movie that was made for you to enjoy it on this level, on a political level. And sometimes I'm just like, you know what? I'm not going to throw an Oscar at it, but I'm going to watch it on a Saturday afternoon on television because I like watching Kate Blanchett and Robert Redford. And, you know, like I said, Topher Grace does a really good job with that scene, I thought. I really actually liked him in this movie. I think that he does less of a great job yeah. with that scene. Just the limitations of the actor, even though I like Topher Grace. Um, I, I mean, like, the reason to watch this movie is to watch Kate Blanchett swiz- yes. swizzle booze while she's, like, oh. ha- experiencing extreme stress and then what rather say Dermot to her? Mulroney into the ground. She really does. That one, that last one where, like, they literally have all gotten up to leave for the day, and she just goes, why haven't you asked me about my politics? And 
um, they all sort of sit down and this like, well, I guess we're doing this now. Like it's so, yeah. it's very much like buckle in because Kate Blanchett is going to take you to church at this point, and she really does. The camera like does a slow pan into her and like, what does rather say to her on the phone during that last conversation? when he calls her up at home and he's like, Hey, it's Dan plus three or whatever. And it was just like, he says he, he specifically like words it to be like, Hey, it's me. And I've got, you know, three drinks in me. And it's, it's very, it's, it's a very specific phrasing for it that I really loved. And then she's just like, I'm working on a bourbon and Xanax cocktail myself. I was like, lady, (laughs) she's a, she's, she's one of those, I think, Blanchett sometimes will just be like, you know what? I'm just going to bite into this character. And I think this is one of those characters, and it really works. I think she plays Mary Mapes as this kind of broad... I think the movie missteps when it steps away from that a little bit. And it was just like, ah, but behind every broad is a girl who wants her daddy to stop being mad at her. Well, and also, like, I don't think that the movie, like, as much as it, like, knows what it's doing when she's, like, monologuing and it just, like, keeps the camera on her and lets her do her thing. But, like, I don't think that... I think she has, like, kind of this take on the character that is in line with the movie's thing of, like, multiple things can be true, and just because of this one detail doesn't make the whole thing not true. Right. Like, there's this perception that is put on Mary Mapes that she has to, like, it's the thing of where it's like, you think that you should be joking at your job about this? Like, one of yeah. the things Dermot, Mul- Dermot Mulroney is grilling her on is some, like, passing joke. They make, like, what is it? A juicy piece of meat for some it's detail a that of brisket. they got. It's a, it's a tasty yeah. piece of brisket. Like, yeah. And it's like, it's there's this element that she brings to it of, like, she is... She can go home and kind of fall apart a little bit, but also she's incredibly capable and smart at the same time. Right. And, like, the movie doesn't really know how to use her as a character in the way that it's that, like, aligns the two and makes it really kind of more of a character study. Yeah. Um, that it really could and make the movie a little bit more interesting. I think that's right. I also feel like the movie is better if it gives us a little bit more of the team working this out. I think there are parts of this movie that seem to be overestimating how how invested we are in Dennis Quaid and Topher Grace's sort of oppositional friendship of people like he's Topher Grace is a whippersnappy little liberal and Dennis Quaid is a military industrial whatever and it's like can they be friends and by the end they have this sort of like moment they of ride mutual... off into the sunset in Dennis Quaid's truck right they have this moment of like mutual respect and I'm just like I don't remember them ever being all that opposed to each other like you sort of get a little bit of a surface stuff but like they never even seemed like they disliked each other in the movie so like those feel like studio notes too that's very possible and then elizabeth moss's character who like you know she contributes but i don't ever think she never feels fully like a character we don't ever really seem to get a whole lot of she's there to ask questions and provide information when she needs when she needs to and maybe this is just a problem of we don't have enough time but like this, I think the movie is better if it operates. And this is where I think about Spotlight. And of course, this mm-hmm. happened in the same fall as Spotlight. And so. In the same like festival season as Spotlight. Oh, yeah. Like the, where yeah. it's like people are responding to Spotlight. I think that people I saw would them probably within days have been, of each other. 
Yeah, I mean, people would have maybe been fair if, like, because if it wasn't right next to Spotlight, because things that Spotlight does well are things that maybe Truth does not, um, in that it gets, like, a real human, like, story in there, or a human element that makes you have this emotional response to it. It gets that team dynamic. It gets the whole, like, gritty journalism aspect where you really understand the business of how these people operate to tell the story. Spotlight's so good. I wonder how that movie will age as a Best Picture winner, but I really, really love it, and I will... I can see myself sticking up for it for decades to come at a point where I think at some point people will start sort of being like, oh, it was just this like movie that made journalists feel good about themselves or whatever. And I think it's so much more than just that. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. It hasn't really hit like that cycle of rewatching yet. But then again, we're only like four, four years removed from it. So right. Rewatch Spotlight, guys. It's really, really good. Also, like, elements of it that you wouldn't necessarily think. Like, there's a great score to that movie. Like, it's it's cinematically a lot more satisfying than just, like, a screenplay and acting movie. I think that's also because that movie happened in the same year as both Fury Road and The Revenant that I think Spotlight winning Best Picture was seen as a triumph of, you know, a good plucky story beating out movies that had real cinematic value or whatever. And I think Spotlight in its own way has great cinematic value. Yeah. It's easily Tom McCarthy's most cinematic movie, most like visually like powerful put together. I think Tom McCarthy has made almost nothing but great movies. I've still never seen The Cobbler and I probably never will because I don't want to like ruin my vision of Tom McCarthy (laughs) for me, but like Station Agent is so good. The Visitor, win, win. so good. Win-Win is so underrated. What incredible. a great movie. And like now I want to look up what he's doing next, because honestly... He's doing something for Disney+. Plus. See, that's the thing. is I'll, Every time I look up a director and I'm like, what are they doing now? It's almost always television. And I don't want to be one of those, like... Netflix is ruining everything, television is ruining everything, and, like, you know, the movies are dying. But it really does feel like a lot of the great filmmakers that I've been really loving, like Barry Jenkins, what's his next project? It's something for TV. Like, they're all sort of, like... What's I think some of it is that's where the money is, and I think sure they and I think are that's where throwing the is. money at these filmmakers to yeah. make stuff for television and make stuff for streaming services. It's not that they don't want to make films; it's just they're following I, I where they can tell stories. I don't think they. I don't think it's the case that they don't want to make films. I think you're right, and I think it's that the progression used to be: you make your bones in your indies, you do, you know, you succeed with them. Maybe they get Oscars, maybe they don't, and then you the payday you get is a studio movie that they let you direct. And so now the pipeline is you make your bones in indies, you succeed or you fail in indies, and if you do well, the pipeline is you go the Ryan Coogler route and you get a blockbuster superhero movie that that's where you make your money, or you go, you're right, the television route, and that's where you make your money. And right now there is no other third option for making... I wrote semi-recently, by the time this gets published, it'll be several weeks old, but I wrote a thing for Vulture about how that sort of the the potboiler legal thriller of the 1990s just isn't around anymore. And that was at least an avenue for if you wanted to make your money, like Alan Pakula made The Pelican Brief, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Sidney Pollack made The Firm, and The Firm made so much money. Both of those movies made so much money, and like that's 
how you end up getting paid is you make those movies that end up making a ton of money and that option just is not available. So that again, you get Coogler doing Black Panther, you get, um, you know, I don't even know, like any number of different examples of even like John Favreau, like John Favreau moving from like chef, like doing so well with chef or whatever. And it's just like, nope, going to go use that clout to, I mean, obviously he was already, you know, Iron Man director and everything like that. But you know what I mean? Like these mid-level directors leveling well, up Well, I mean, to... I think Truth's a good example of it because it's only a four-year-old movie, but like, and in some ways, like, it kind of defends the opposite of it a little bit because Truth, like, 100% now would be a limited series, but it yeah. might also be better better as a, as a limited, limited series. series i think you're it right could do the type of things that we're saying the movie either doesn't have time or doesn't try to do and it would be better and you almost want to say well then it doesn't get Kate blanchett but these days that's not true yeah, these days yeah. they're getting I mean, it Kate blanchett's in documentary now <laughs> like oh she's so good i mean that's a different those story. walls only... don't exist of what is yeah. like of tv being considered slumming it anymore like it doesn't yeah which i think i guess in some ways is good and you know the part of me that fears change and loves, you know, the cinema and does appreciate, I think part of me, all right, here's the thing. Okay. So the trade-off with truth is it's a two hour movie that you watch and it's fun and it's meat and potatoes and you're in and out in two hours and you have a good time, even though it's not a great movie or it's an eight episode miniseries that you watch either all at once or once a week and maybe it sags in the middle, and maybe it doesn't keep that like punchy momentum the whole way through. Mm-hmm. So maybe you like it a little bit less, but it's better. And like that's the trade-off, right? I also think there's a certain level that like we weren't really having the conversation that Truth is having at the time, whereas like it would be a much more welcome audience today with things like fake news yeah. and all of like it's a much more worthy discussion to be having now and i think it's part of the reason why i liked the movie more watching it again oh you did you liked it better now than you did the first oh time. definitely yeah what what about just that timeliness i think so i think it feels here's the thing like i think at the time when this movie came out it felt like one of the last vestiges of those type of prestige movies we talk about a lot on this podcast that we're dealing with the bush administration and the war in iraq and like the whole re-election cycle. And it felt a little bit like that. And yeah. it doesn't feel like that if you watch it now at all. It feels a little bit more relevant towards like journalistic ethics and yeah. like what type of sway especially conservative media has over their constituents to right. sway the conversation away from what they don't want to talk about. Did you end up? Did you find yourself thinking of the insider during this, or is that just because I've been listening to the blank check series on uh, <laughs> Michael Mann? Because obviously, really think about sixty the minutes is is quite you know they're the two big movies about sixty minutes, right? Yeah, and they're both sort of it's two sides of the same coin, right? Like the insider is about a whistleblower; it's the tobacco industry. There's less overt political pressure from like the White House. But um, there's a lot of pressure from lobbyists and industry and whatever and that kind of thing. But I think that movie is so much more overtly cinematic as, you know, Michael Mann movies tend to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that makes it necessarily better. I do think The Insider is a better movie than Truth. But Definitely. Um, I definitely started thinking about it when, like, you, when you think of... I think Truth also 
paints a picture of Dan Rather in as loving a light as possible. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have. I'm not saying that there's a dark side to Dan Rather that needed to be explored to tell this story. But you look at the difference between that and what the insider does with Mike Wallace, which is not a hit job, but it really is, you know, warts and all. And like, he's a frightening prospect in that movie as played by Christopher Walken. Beautifully by Christopher. I mean, talk about, I mean, Oscar... Oscar buzz for Christopher. Did I say Christopher Walken? Yes, Christopher Plummer. I was like, wait, Christopher Walken? Why don't I remember Christopher Walken? God, as that no, would have been Christopher Plummer. <laughs> Jeffrey Wigand. God, I'm not going to do a Christopher Mike, Walken impersonation. A Christopher what a fucking hack thing to do. God, kill me now. Um. Anyway, Christopher Plummer, who I honestly feel like nobody that year, and as far as, as far as supporting performances, nobody that year touches Christopher Plummer and The Insider. And it's crazy to me that he didn't get nominated. One of our best, Christopher for Plummer. A, for a movie that was Best Picture nominated, that had a bajillion nominations, uh, Russell Crowe Because Crow's the entire story, acting-wise, for that movie revolved around Pacino and Russell Crowe. There wasn't room. Like they didn't make room. You make room. You make room. You campaign. You like but that's an easy that's the it. easiest campaign ever. Look at how good this legend of acting Christopher Plummer is. If I would 8 billion times prefer Christopher Plummer to have his Oscar for The Insider than for Beginners. I mean, I think he's great in Beginners. I don't love Beginners. I mean, the movie is there a different is conversation than that performance. But. There is a wall between me and Beginners that I've never been able to surmount, and I don't know what that is. I think part of it is the blinding insincerity of Ewan McGregor in movies that like that movie, but that movie specifically, that I find effective in a movie like Moulin Rouge, but very ineffective in a movie like Beginners. And... I'm just very happy that Mike Mills ended up making 20th Century Women, so I can... Masterpiece 20th Century Women. Masterpiece, so I can sort of wash the taste of, like, not liking Beginners, because I felt bad about not... Everybody loved this movie about this guy and his gay dad, and, like, (laughs) who wouldn't love this, like, old gay man Christopher Plummer, and who doesn't love that he, you know, won his Oscar for that? And I was just, like, the asshole curmudgeon being like, I don't like it. It's also a terrible supporting actor year. It's a brutal... That was the year of what? Nolte for Warrior, one of the worst acting nominations of my lifetime. <laughs> God, brutal. Who else? Wait, who else was supporting actor that year? Um, bah, 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 bah. No one from The Artist. Ja, um, Jonah Hill for Moneyball. Fine. Being there. What's that? Uh, he was just uh, being there. Oh, I was, was like, wait, being, being there, there wasn't Moneyball. that. Wasn't and I love that Moneyball. Who else? Wait. Uh, I hate that I can't remember. Right! For Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Wild. It's like, we already love the old men. Let's get another one. (laughs) Um, No one from The Help. No one from The Iron Lady. Was Christoph Waltz in there for some bullshit? No, you know who it was? It was Kenneth Branagh for My Week with Marilyn. Oh, you know how we all remember the performance of Kenneth Branagh movie, My Week with Marilyn. (laughs) Boy... It's so funny how I'm so glad we held on to Michelle Williams and didn't like cancel her fully after that because like that is an irritating fucking movie. I think Everybody she's good in it. I don't know if I would nominate for her for an Oscar for it, but she's good in it. But everything else in that movie is dumb. I don't think she's good in it. Or, or like I don't think she's bad in it, but I think what she ends up doing is 
irritating as fuck. I think everything in that movie. It's so funny that, like, after that movie, she ends up getting... She's gotten one nomination since then or two nominations since then. Mm-hmm. But she's Blue fully Valentine gotten back on track. Then, uh, it might be more than... It might be, like, three after then. Well, Blue Valentine was before then. Brokeback was before then. And I think she only has four nominations. Only. She only has four. <laughs> no. Well, what I'm saying is... is just oh, the no. One All, Blue Valentine was before that, but it's only yeah. Manchester by the Sea after that. Right. But I think since then, I think Branna has directed... Is Thor after that? I can't remember. Thor might have been that year. What a year for Kenneth Branagh. Um, but Eddie Redmayne goes and wins his Oscar after that. So, like, My Week with Marilyn doesn't, like, ruin it for anybody. And yet, I think it's such a disaster. Yeah, Thor was that year. Wow. Great year for Kenneth Branagh. Boy. Well, I think they rushed Kenneth Branagh has directed one, Man- two, three, four... Five, no, sorry. Four movies that have been released since Thor. Can you guess them? Murder on the Orient Express, All Correct. is True. I um, love that you, only you would know All is True right off the bat. You and your AARP love and self. <laughs> um, 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 crap, now you got me sidetracked. Um, sorry. It's okay. Um... There's another, like, kids movie, I think, or a family movie. Yes, one of them is part of a dominant trend in blockbuster filmmaking today that is currently residing at the top of the charts. It's not like a Paddington, but it's like a Paddington. Sort of. No. Hmm. What's the dominant money-making trend in, in blockbuster filmmaking right this second? Uh, Disney rehashes. He did Cinderella! There we go, Cinderella. And then the other one is a movie I'm pretty sure you haven't seen, but it's wild that he directed it. It's a sequel of a movie I've also never seen, because I this is, like, my least favorite genre. Oh. Your least favorite genre Oh, wait, sorry, no, I'm thinking (laughs) I thought it was something else. It's still my least one of my least favorite genres, but this was, um, not what I thought it was. I thought it was Jack Reacher. It is not Jack Reacher. Or it's Is it Jack Ryan? Jack Ryan. Jack he Ryan. Did not, no, he recruit. did not. You cannot convince me, not with money, not with time, that he directed a Jack Ryan movie. I like to think about all the people who tended and picked the grapes. And if it's an old wine, how many of them must be dead by now? I like how wine continues to evolve. Like, if I opened a bottle of wine today, it would taste different than if I'd opened it on any other day. Because a bottle of wine is actually alive. And it's constantly evolving and gaining complexity. That is, until it peaks. Like you're 61. And then it begins its... Steady, inevitable decline. And it tastes so fucking good. Can we talk about Kate Blanchett? No, never. Never talk about Kate Blanchett. We why would we talk about Kate Blanchett on our Oscar podcast? Uh, exactly. And why, as we, two homosexuals who <laughs> love the movie Carol, not talk about the movie Carol? 
when we have the opportunity. The same year. The same exact year. And I, it's one of those things where this was already a very crowded Best Actress year, and Carol was the one that everybody was naturally going for, probably partly because it's a much, much better movie, and it's like yeah. the better performance, even though she's not bad at truth by any measure. But like, you can't really have both, literally, in the rules. You can't yes. be... Nominated twice in the same category. Though, the IMD, here's one of the frustrating things about IMDb trivia. Somebody put it in there that, like, you can't campaign for two, and that is false. <laughs> that is totally false. That is of absolutely course you false. But. You absolutely can. Yeah. Carol. Why would you is, is a question you might want to ask, but you could. You could. You absolutely could. But, like, there was, this year has a lot of, like, jockeying for people, like, switching between categories. People get very mad when you talk about this supporting actress race. Yes. Rooney Mara, especially. Alicia Vikander, especially. I will say, I just want to throw it out there, that like with Kate Blanchett having two big roles in fall movies between this and Carol, we sometimes maybe gloss over the fact that the the presumed... like It was never a question that Blanchett's Oscar play was going to be the lesbian movie directed by a gay man that was sort of, you know, arty and period costumes and... Very swoony and not, like... Very swoony. That, like, nobody was like, why don't we make it the more palatable, like, liberal handjob movie (laughs) truth (laughs) instead of Carol? And it's just like, maybe that's a little bit of progress. I think sometimes... I think there was a little bit of a persecution complex that set in when Carol didn't get a Best Picture nomination in 2015. Despite and like, certainly its six it nominations. It. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's like, not, it's not like people, they hated like, that movie. The Academy hated Carol. They were they, they totally snubbed it, whatever. It's just like, it got six nominations. You know how many great movies don't get as many as six nominations at the Oscars? Like, there was clearly, yes, a disconnect in the Best Picture voting, and that does not portend to good things about the people in the Academy and the voters in the Academy. I mean, whatever. Good, good people can disagree about things, but not about Carol. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so I, if, like, truth is getting screwed out of, like, the conversation, like, that it doesn't really even stand a chance when you have something like Spotlight, and maybe even to a smaller extent the big short in the Best Picture running, like, yeah. it's not like they fully hated women's pictures, even though people ascribe this to be a very macho Best Picture lineup, and yeah, it's not necessarily wrong. But the... Right. Uh, the Academy is always going to favor a Brooklyn, which is very, like, clearly the thing that it is and very, like, accessible, tells you what the emotions are over right. a Carol, which is a little bit more, like, interpretive. You have to, like, kind of key into Remember the Remember all those wavelength. people calling it chilly? Oh, it's so chilly. Which is, like, like just a fuck? sign of, like, you are not picking up what the movie is putting down. Like, I don't understand that criticism of that movie. So, like, criticize that movie if you want to. But, like, I think that, to me, was a little bit of a deliberate misreading of the movie, where it's just, like, because there weren't big scenes of anybody crying, because there weren't any, like, big Because it doesn't tell like, you what to feel, and you have to kind of interpret what the energy is in the room that right. you're seeing. I love God. I just, I just I love Carol. I love the way that movie ends at exactly the right. I like literally my inner monologue as it's going is just like cut to black, cut to black, cut to black, <laughs> cut to black. And they did it at exactly 
exactly the right moment. As Kate Blanchett smiles into the depths of your soul and your loins. And just as you, just at the second that you think you're going to get a read on what exactly she's thinking, it cuts away. Like, it's perfect. It's absolutely... You already know what she's thinking. You already know. That's like... Do you, though? Yes, you do. You think she's going to just be like, no, go away? Are you insane? No. You know what's going to happen after that that. camera cuts to black? They are going to have sex on that (laughs) hotel restaurant table. That is exactly what is happening. It is a happy ending. Uh, I mean, it's definitely... You're right. It, you're right. It is a happy ending. It, I don't know. I think it's a, there's still something beguiling about the way that like she's staring directly, you know, into the camera at that into exact us, moment. Into right. our, the fiber of our being, our soul. She is staring at the red matter that is us as human beings and we collapse. Um, what if Todd Haynes got the critical benefit of the doubt that and I'm not saying Carol was a flop with critics by any means, but like got the sort of aces across the board report cards that Tarantino seems to get, or like that everybody sort of assumes that something major from Tarantino in the way that like, I don't think Todd Haynes has afforded the same leeway. I mean, he doesn't spoon feed you things is the other thing though. I mean, we'll see what comes of his movie that's supposedly coming this year, which it sounds it like it's a little bit more mainstream. I think it I is planned for this, this year, year, but we don't yeah. know if it's coming to a festival or not. This is Hathaway, him and Hathaway. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about that. Um, and Mark Ruffalo about DuPont. Yeah. Um, oh, however, right. looping back to Kate Blanchett, it is always we talk so much about like a certain period of Kate Blanchett here on this podcast where it's like all of these forgettable um like movies that just kind of blur together that it is just the name of a woman and her face on a poster like the Veronica right. Garens we've talked about those before we haven't done an episode right. on them but we've talked about them that like truth is interesting to me that it is not one of those things like i think it is even though i didn't like it the first time i saw it it was memorable and i don't think there's a lot of those movies we could talk about on this podcast for that are not those, you know, forgettable movies of hers. And I think it's interesting. The police are coming for you for calling any Cain Blanchett movie forgettable. Oh, hi. Um, <laughs> can if, you hear that siren? If you have can seen you Veronica Guerin and siren? can go on at length about what is memorable <laughs> about that movie, uh, my DMs are open. Um, that should be a game show. Is gay men lining up to, to talk to, to me specifically the about Veronica Guerin? Describe the plot of obscure movies no, starring not even Veronica um, Guerin. Give me Charlotte Gray. Oh, Charlotte Gray is a good one. But just like, just in general, like gay film experts trying to explain the plots of obscure movies starring like A list actresses. I'm into it. I, we would host that game show. Yeah. Just like um, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. Go. Oh, I love the prize winner. <laughs> See? See? You should be on this game show. Um, okay, we will eventually talk about that movie. But Dancing at Luknasa, go. Have like, um, Exactly. Anyway, I think it could it be like Balderdash. That we have this movie in the year of Carol, is all I'm saying. And all I'm For saying is purposes. it could be like Balderdash, where you could like describe the plot and then other people have to guess whether you're making it up or not. There, there. That's all. I'm into it. 
Yeah, Carol should have won Best Picture that year. <laughs> Agreed. We we agree I agree. Something this it was my number one movie of that year. My it's going to make a lot of top tens when we talk about best movies of the decade, which apparently IndieWare has decided it's already time to do. So my kind great. of feeling, like I have no, I have no here nor there on that list. Everybody seemed to be very, very angry about it, but. My only thing was, like, if you're going to still have 2019 movies in there, shouldn't you maybe, like, I don't know, see, more, the, see more of those movies? The see all of them? See the, all the big major 2019 movies? Yeah. Yeah, maybe you should. I am not interested in having a conversation about the best movies of the decade. I am interested in having a conversation on the best female performances of the decade. Let's have that well, conversation instead. I odds are I'll probably be having that conversation, so I think you're fine. Probably is there with anything me more? many times. Yeah. Is there anything more to say about Redford, or have we talked all our talk about how... It's interesting you know, to me, because I'm sure there are other Redford movies that we will have this conversation. He's another actor that only has one acting nomination, and I think people forget that. But he has yes. these like late career, we know he's going to retire movies that never got him... A nomination, and it feels like at the end of the day, weirdly, there's nothing to say about it. Like, I think even if we did an old man and the gun episode, we would spend most of the episode talking about a lot of other things that aren't like his performance just didn't get there in a way. Like, it's like people have still continued to take him for granted, even though he's playing a famous figure. Here's what I will say, is I appreciate that Robert Redford, as he sort of reaches his autumn years, and autumn years, is autumn years the right term, or is he like well into late December? I don't Um, know. uh, I think, technically speaking, this is the autumn by midsummer terms. He's older than 72, (laughs) though, so he hasn't, you know, gone face first off of a cliff yet. Listen, he's still spry enough to show up in an Avengers movie, even though he doesn't really need to. So good for him for that. No, but I appreciate about Robert Redford is that he'll take these movies that we sort of interpret as going for that elusive acting Oscar, right? And maybe that's part on his mind and maybe it's not. But their roles like All is Lost and there's, you know, The Old Man and the Gun. And he really under like not quite underplays them but like doesn't overplay them doesn't like take them for these like big hammy um you know i'm gonna make my oscar clip scene Mm -hmm. in a way that like and not to disparage other actors who i think are wonderful actors and are like have given great performances over their careers but like compare robert redford and robert duvall and yeah i so much more appreciate what Redford is bringing to the table in All is Lost and in Old Man and the Gun than the histrionics <laughs> that Duval is doing in The Judge and uh, in playing the himself perfect in movie Widows. that is Widows. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I, I mean, Widows is a great movie, in, and because it's a great movie, it accommodates Duval going off the fucking rails the way he does, but he still goes off the fucking rails. He's so over the top in that movie. He's so, like, it's astounding to watch actually i would love at some point to just like pigeonhole colin farrell at a party and just be like what was going through your head because like can you imagine that being just like across the table from you i can't so the subtext of every word out of robert duvall's mouth in that movie is i'm old i'm racist <laughs> i'm corrupt 
He is doesn't all he those actually things. scream "I'm old" in that movie, or am I? He does. I think he. No, I think he does. Yeah. What an old coot! What an old coot! And yet, represents a lot of fucking real people in the world, which is a shame. A shame. Truth what else deserves better should be on rotation on TV. Do you think that maybe the reason why it's still not on TV is like lingering Viacom issues? Oh, because like CBS refused to air ads for the movie. The movie, if this movie goes hard on anything, I think it is Viacom. I think it goes harder on corporations than it does for George W. Bush in any sense. I don't really think this movie has anything to much say about George W. Bush. Not really. I think I think the movie sort of takes it for a given that power will seek to preserve itself. And I don't think it ever makes George... I mean, it mentions Abu Ghraib a lot, which indicts Bush, you know, by implication or whatever, by association. But the one part of the movie that really bumped me out and really kind of, like, made my blood run a little bit cold is there's a flash of a TV screen early on before the 20, 2004 election that shows Bush's favorables, unfavorables, and he's like... 10% uh, unfavorables to favorables. Like, he's down 10 points in terms of people who would vote for him or would not vote for him. Um, and I'm just like, shit. First of all, A, we could have had him there. And B, like, you know, what does that mean for Trump's unfavorables? And that, that right. Bush was able to pull out that election anyway. But I don't want to think about that right now. I do have a game for you if you want. If we want to play this, I super want to things. play a game. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so this is notedly a very competitive Best Actress year, but it's also partly the reason that it was competitive was it was very, 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 very scattered. Really, the only people that showed up everywhere are Brie Larson for Room, Kate Blanchett for Carol, and Saoirse Ronan for Brooklyn. And then those final two spots went to Jennifer Lawrence for Joy and Charlotte Rampling for 45 years. However, there were other names in the mix throughout the year. Never Kate Blanchett for Truth, however. You also have, like, the thing where Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara were nominated for lead and then nominated, and including Alicia right. Vikander, won for supporting performances. So, right. because it's such a scattered year, I'm going to have you play a little guessing game, but not with anything like the Globes or SAG. You have to guess the five actresses nominated for the AARP movie for no. Best Actress. And guess okay. what? Just to make it a little easier on you. I'm going to give you the hint that only one nominee is an Oscar nominee in that year. Okay. That really throws me, actually, because at least two of those nominations, I would say two of those nominations, seem like they would fit perfectly. I'm going to... I. The thing with Charlotte Rampling is she that is a role and a performance that could not fit more ideally into the AARP Movies for Grown-Ups rubric, which is that is a AARP movie for grown-ups 45 years. Like it is essentially about what happens to an old retired couple and their marriage when they have too much time to think about it essentially. And and yet it was such a lower profile movie than Carol. And Kate Blanchett is like, you know, a a movie for grown up. Like she's not older, but she's just like, why don't they make movies for, you know, people who aren't teenagers anymore? You know what I mean? Like Kate Blanchett should mm-hmm. be in those movies. So are you I'm saying gonna, they nominated Charlotte Rampling or not? I'm gonna say they did nominate Charlotte Rampling. They did nominate Charlotte Rampling. Okay, That's the Oscar God. nominee. They actually uh, 
definitely watched their 45 Years screener. They also nominated Good. Tom Courtney, and 45 Years was also nominated for Best Grown-Up Love Story. Okay, that's good. All right, so other actress, so four other actresses were nominated that were not Oscar nominees. Yes, at all, right? Not in, in not in either category. I will say all of them of the remaining four showed up in a major precursor, except for one, and I love this one. Okay, and you love that one, and they're all women of a certain age. Correct. Is one of them Helen Mirren and Woman in Gold? Yes, Helen Mirren, Woman yeah. in Gold, movie we God. should talk about. Great. Perfect. Um, is Are any of them movies we've done on this head No. No. Which rules out Meryl and Ricky and the Flash. Sadly, yes. Meryl got right. nothing for Ricky and the Flash. Yeah, we would have talked about movies for grown-ups on that podcast if uh, if she had. <sighs> Are they all, like, baby dramas, or are any, like, comedies in there? I would say these would all have qualified for Golden Globe comedy, even though some of them are dramatic. Dramedies. Okay. Huh. All right. That helps. Who's? What's the youngest rel- general age of the youngest nominee? Um, I think the the youngest is definitely the one who was not nominated. Let me see if this performance... I don't think this performance was nominated. This would have been, like, the most major nomination. It was also nominated for Best Grown-Up Love Story. I will say that. Okay. Love Story. The love story that this actress played opposite, her love interest, was also in... was also a former love interest of another nominee in the same year. Oh. And, like, had a lot of Oscar talk for a few years and finally got it last year for their first nomination. Oh, God. Now I've got to think of last year's nominees. I'm so bad at, like, the most recent year's Oscar nominees. This was a performance that last year we thought would just show up everywhere, and it weirdly didn't. But it did get nominated. Yes, at the the Oscars. Oscars. It was this actor's first nomination, and it was, like, building to it over recent years. So not Marina de Tavares. Um, yes. <laughs> is it Defoe? No. Willem Defoe no, has, like, been nominated three or four nominations. Several times. Right, right, right. He has um, a very... Uh, he. I think there is a physical attribute that this actor oh, wait. is known for. And was a, this the year that oh, Sam Elliott romanced all the older ladies in Hollywood? Yes. Is this Lily Tomlin and Grandma? She won! She won! Good she for her. She was the winner, but no, the one that I am talking about that had no other precursor nominations is... Blythe Danner. Blythe Danner. For what movie? For, um... Uh, I'll See You in My Dreams. I'll See You what in My Dreams. a wonderful movie uh, and performance. A very wonderful movie. I, I love, love Blythe Danner. Alright, so wait, it's Blythe Danner, Lily Tomlin, Charlotte Rampling, two other people. Uh, no, you said Helen Mirren, so we're waiting on one. Oh, right. This was a Golden Globe nominee. Imagine a certain actress of a certain age who was essentially playing what we deemed a caricature of themselves, and imagine that to its nth degree. A caricature of themselves to the Or what nth we perceived degree. them to be. Huh. 
This is a winning Snatch Game character. Or the actress is a winning Snatch Game. Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith in The Woman in the Van. The Lady in the Van. The Lady in the Van. Okay, have you ever seen The Lady in the Van? I have not seen The Lady in the Van. Gather your gayest friends (laughs) and watch The Lady in the Van. It is. Is it or is it not a funnier die sketch? You make that call yourself. That's I'm not going to tell you like that, that movie's going to be. So it yes, is, it's hilariously terrible. 2015's very un-Oscar-y best actress <laughs> AARP movie for grown-ups lineup is Charlotte Rampling, 45 Years, Maggie Smith, Lady in the Van, Blythe Danner, I'll See You in My Dreams, Helen Mirren, Woman in Gold, and the winner, Lily Tomlin for Grandma. That's a good lineup. That's a really good that's lineup. Good that's lineup. worth. That's worth making a quiz about, I will say. Anyway, Can I talk CLC about the weekend that um, that Truth debuted? Uh, yes, go for it. When it opened in limited release, especially. Because one of the quotes from, I think it was from somebody from the studio. Somebody sort of like in the excuse-making business for yeah. why Truth didn't make any money. Because it fucking bombed. It y'all. bombed it in really... limited release. And then when it went wide, it was like 700 per screen it, average. It, it and it opened yes, and it was at like sixteenth on the on the list that weekend. But so it it opened in limited release two weekends before that. All the other movies that opened limited that day, it was really it was crowded. Truth, Room, Beasts of No Nation, um, Bridge of Spies, which opened wide, Crimson Peak, which opened wide, love it, Goosebumps, which whatever that's no comparison to this. A movie called Woodlawn that I've never heard of. Not a football movie. It is a football movie. Um, What else opened that weekend? I said Beasts of No Nation. It's just like, I mean, Tab Hunter Confidential. Oh, Experimenter, which like barely ever like screened anywhere. Yeah. Do you remember Experimenter? Did you ever see that? Yeah, it's Peter Peter Sarsgaard. Isn't uh, Winona Ryder in that movie? Yeah, it's pretty good. But anyway, yeah. So the 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 excuse makers at the time were just like there were too much there was too much competition for the over thirty crowd, and to, uh, on its face, I was like, that's a fucking thin excuse. But now looking at this, I was like, oh yeah, no, like it it all these movies kind of really crowded each other out. Room ends up being and all the of success, the other movies obviously. kind of have like their ardent fans at the very least, even if not all of those movies are universally beloved. They yeah. all had like people who were being loud about how much they loved it and truth did not have any of that by anyone i mean beasts of no nation was a weird one that year because it was the netflix movie so it's like studio or uh, theatrical release was purely cursory and like almost theoretical yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. guess how much money room made a best picture nominee after all was said and done 14 million yes 14 million one of the lowest box office totals for the best, best picture, picture nominee ever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a surprise. That was an interesting surprise, that that and especially that Lenny Abrahamson um, got the director nomination that year, which was, like, truly wild. You know what AARP nominated that was really great? They nominated what? Joan Allen for Room for Supporting Actress. I was surprised that never got more traction that year. If some of those Supporting Actress nominees had been leads as they actually were, then maybe there would have been room for her. yeah. I mean, Room, room I think, with the exception of Brie Larson, had to claw for each one of those nominations, in a way, because of the subject matter of the movie. People were so averse to seeing it. True or false, with six more months of campaigning, Jacob Tremblay would have been a supporting actor nominee. True. True. 
I'm like to the point where I wonder if they regret not not bringing him out sooner, not making him part of that campaign sooner. I I also never really understood how uh, this is kind of pivoting a little bit, but how Michael Keaton wasn't a nominee for Spotlight. I am one of those people that don't think Mark Ruffalo is very good in that movie, and I know like well, everybody's across the board with what they think about the Spotlight performances. But Michael Keaton is truly delivering some of his best work in that movie, and like the has is, the emotional crux of that movie. Weirdly enough, even though Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara were rewarded for being leads in a supporting category, I think Michael Keaton was weirdly punished for it. I think for whatever reason, people were like, he's not a supporting actor, he's a lead actor. And I wonder if that's like man versus woman, whereas just like, we will accept women as being designated. Also, though, they were both from two lead movies, both Vikander and Rooney Mara, whereas, like, Michael Keaton was, like, the one lead in Spotlight, and trying to make the argument that, like, oh, the team, it was all the team, it's like, yeah, except... I mean, I would still put him in supporting actor. Would you really? Yeah, I would. Wow, I think he's definitely I buy that that is one of those, there's no lead, it's an ensemble Mm. type of thing. I think that applies to that movie safely. I don't buy that, and the other thing is... This was one of those years where Best Actor was way weaker than Best Supporting Actor. And I think if you had if you had campaigned Keaton as a lead, he would have absolutely gotten a nomination. Yeah. Maybe. So, I think so. My favorite performance of all of those men in um in Spotlight is probably Tucci. Everybody's so good in that movie. But I love Crude Up as well. I do. I I like Mark Ruffalo. I think Mark Ruffalo, I get why people think he's, he doesn't fit in with the rest of them because he has those like very actory sort of moments that nobody else has. I think like tonally, it's just off from the rest of the movie. The only thing that doesn't work for me in the movie is his like tickiness and his blow up scene. It doesn't feel like it meshes in with everything else going on around him. I think you needed one person in that in that newsroom to have it be too much for them. To have the 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 awfulness of what they're investigating ultimately like flip them out. Anyway, 2015 again. Oscar year, not great ultimately lineup, but I like discussing it. I think the I highlights like are such highlights. I think it's. A, I think when you talk about Spotlight and Carol and Mad Max Fury Road, I think it really, really, really helps distract you from the fact that like I didn't like The Revenant. I didn't like The Danish Girl. I didn't like Best Actor lineup is terrible. Should have been Fastbender in a Cakewalk. Fix it, Steve. Should have been Fastbender in a Cakewalk. Even though I did like The Martian and I did like Matt Damon in The Martian. Um. I think I think you're right. I think it should have been Fassbender in a cakewalk. I think DiCaprio's performance was a feat of daredeviling and not of acting so much. I think Cranston in Trumbo is a pretty bad nominee. And wait, DiCaprio, Damon, we could Fassbender. have had Michael B. Jordan as a nominee. That's the other thing. That no, was, I have reservations the about Creed. the movie as a whole, but like. That should have happened. Michael B. Jordan should have absolutely been a Best Actor nominee. Tom Hanks should have been nominated just for the choice of, like, I'm just going to have a cold in this movie. (laughs) For no reason. Like, that's just the choice that he made. It's true. It's, It's a real weird 
Oscar year. So the Best Picture nominees, as I mentioned, Spotlight, Carol, Fury Road, The Revenant, The Martian, Room, Brooklyn, The Big Short, and Bridge of Spies. There's a lot of moving parts to that lineup. And the fact that like we didn't know until the last second who was going to win Best Picture was actually really interesting. For a second there, it really did feel like Fury Road was going to take it because it was winning so much mm-hmm. early in the night on Oscar night. Good ceremony. Good ceremony. Yes. All right. So do you want to play the IMDb game? Yeah. Do you want to tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? Of course I do. Every week here on this at Oscar Buzz, we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles uh, that the IMDb says uh, that they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front, because we're, you know, good guys that way. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles, release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, because it is better to get things right than to just be frustrated and in the wilderness so that's it imdb game chris would you rather give or receive i'm going to give because i am right once again i am a gay man all roads lead back to carol and (laughs) with carol comes todd haynes kate blanchett is one of his main muses but who is the mainest muse julianne julianne moore so have we never done Julianne Moore? We have never done Julianne Moore. I double checked, okay. and I do All not right. see her anywhere. Okay, she's interesting because she's one where her Oscar nominations are a lot smaller and more obscure than, and she's done a lot of like blockbuster stuff. Well, I'm thinking like I don't know whether I want to guess still Alice. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but I wouldn't call her first Oscar nomination obscure. No, I was gonna. You, were, I was getting there. You. Now it sounds like I'm only guessing Boogie Nights because you led me to it. Nope, I'm. Not, I am leading you to nothing. I am just counterpointing your argument. All right, but like the end of the affair is not going to be on there, is what I'm saying. Boogie you are Nights. saying that. Boogie Nights is my guess. Boogie Nights is your guess. Boogie yeah. Nights is a wrong guess. <laughs> you know the thing about Boogie Nights. What is Strangely, the thing about Boogie you Nights? fully expect it to be like high on the IMDb game algorithm. It is not. Yeah. I don't think Boogie Nights has shown up for anyone we have done. And that we've is done true. Boogie Nights people. Do you think do you think it would be on Burt Reynolds's? I bet you it would be. I bet it's on Burt Reynolds. I bet it's on Heather Graham's. But that it's not on Julianne Moore's or Mark Wahlberg's is weird. Yes. Anyway, okay, so not Boogie Nights. Okay. As I said, I don't think it's going to be the end of the affair. If it's not Boogie Nights, I don't think it's going to be Magnolia. Um, the hours. The hours. All roads thank also lead God. back to the hours. The hours is very popular, actually, on the IMDb game, and thank, thankfully so. Um, or like, here's another Oscar nomination. I'm not sure if I want to guess, which is Far from Heaven. But I'll guess Far from Heaven. Far from Heaven is wrong. Fuck. Okay. Give me you yours. have your two wrong guesses. Okay. Um, your years are 2010, 2014, and also 2014. Well, if it's two in 2014, one of them's going to be Still Alice. Still Alice. Okay. What's her other movie? Is that um, um, Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, 2? No. Okay. Was that even that year? I don't know. Um, uh, Julianne no. Moore. And you said what's the other year? Uh, 2010. 2010. Kids are all right. Kids are all right. That's cute. So she should have been nominated guess. for that. 
She absolutely That's a hell of a she's year. She's better than a lot of Annette Bening in that movie. And I think they're both great, but I, I agree. Yes. I think more is more might so be funny that year. She's so okay. funny. All right, so I'm li- waiting on the other 2014 Julianne Moore movie. This and is a not... well-regarded performance. Okay. Supporting? Uh, it depends. <laughs> It's not the airplane movie with Liam Neeson, right? It is not. <laughs> I said it's a well-regarded movie. I there. regard that performance very well. What was that called? Nonstop. 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 Okay. She showed up in that trailer for one second, had on she... glasses, and was looking out the corner of her eye. I was like, you, ma'am, are the villain in that movie. I was going to say, everybody watched that trailer and is just like, she did it. Julianne Moore did it. <laughs> you know people, what, though? Have you people, seen that movie? I, she I'm didn't really do it. just canvassing our audience for things this episode. But truly, you guys, if any of you have seen Nonstop, tell us if she's the villain or not. I've seen Nonstop. She's not the villain. What? Yeah. First of all. Why have you seen Nonstop? I saw it in the theater because that trailer looked awesome. Okay, fine. You were not going to keep me from Nonstop. I almost saw it in 4DX. (laughs) You know who the bad guy is? Is, uh, uh, what's his name? Birth of a Nation. No, it's Scoot McNary and... Oh, Scoot McNary uh, in a movie. Villain. And who's birth... uh, I can't remember. Why can't I remember his name? The Birth of a Nation guy. Uh, uh, Nate Parker? Yes. I'm pretty sure it's those two in cahoots. Anyway. Moving right along. Okay, so this one performance, it is, some people thought it was kind of stunty. I think she's brilliant in this movie. She is essentially, without saying it, playing a variation on one performer who our listeners were very excited to hear us talk about. Um, Perhaps for schadenfreudic reasons. One performer that we're very excited to have hear us talk about. Who does Meryl pray for? Oh, Lindsay. She was playing... Mer- Julianne Moore is playing a version of Lindsay? You can't tell me that she is not being Lindsay Lohan in this movie. Maps to the Stars? Maps to the Stars. Okay, you can't see me, David but I'm flipping Cronenberg. both middle fingers to Maps to the Stars. Fuck that movie. I hate that movie. She's great in that movie. Fine. I never want to see it again. She is so funny in that movie. It's fucking stupid. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Listen, listeners, if you haven't seen Maps to the Stars, you can listen to Joseph or you can listen to me that Julianne Moore is the reason to watch that movie. She is a scream. She's so funny. Who's the actual young actress in that movie? Is it Mia Wasikowska, of course. Mia Wasikowska. How about... Jane Eyre. How about Mia Wieskowska in Jane Eyre? I will never, never, never fucking forget Meryl Streep doing that at the Golden Globes. Yeah. It is truly, it is the moment. If we didn't put Canada Water in our opening uh, intro to this podcast, it would have been Meryl Streep going, and what about Adepero Odebye? We will, if we ever have a glow up or a change to our opening music, you can count on that, listeners. The, the greatest thing about that whole speech is she says Adepero Debye and she says Mia Vaskiovska. <laughs> is it fully obscures the fact that she calls Tilda Swinton Gilda? She calls Tilda Swinton, as I was going to say, she calls Tilda Swinton Gilda. Yes. Yes. Fine. We'll throw that in there. It'll be on the Tumblr. <sighs> yes. All right. Would you like to guess? Yes. Who am I guessing? All right, so Kate Blanchett, 
is in a movie this month called Where Did You Go, Bernadette, based on a book directed Great by book. Richard Linkletter. At this point, nobody we know has seen it, and from the trailer, I have no idea what to expect. Tonally, or people really love that book. Year ago, people who love that book are very concerned based on the trailer because they think the trailer does not capture the tone of the movie. I am intrigued because I have not read the book, and I feel like the the movie could go some places. Mm -hmm. It's got a very interesting cast. It's Kate Blanchett along with um, Judy Greer, who I love, and Billy Crudup. And Lawrence Fishburne, and the person who I'm going to have you guess for Kristen the Wig game, Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig, no TV, so no SNL. Correct. SNL well, doesn't show up for any of the SNL people. I will say. I mean, bridesmaids. Correct. That is the first one. I feel like everybody's trying to forget Ghostbusters happened, so I'm not going to guess Ghostbusters. Um, hmm. That is your choice. What about Welcome to Me? No, that's an interesting guess, but no. Mm. I mean, she's the headliner of that movie. Um, Skeleton Twins? Yes, that's a good pull. That's a great movie. There we go. She's not going to show up for Mother. Her role is too small. No. (laughs) My favorite tweet about Kristen Wiig in Mother was... uh, (laughs) During the whole dust-up of it, Guy Branham tweeted, Mother, starring, and uh, he goes, and Kristen Wiig as Judaism. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which is my favorite part of that. (laughs) Which, if you think about the allegory of Mother, is utterly true. Um, I know she's not in there for one of my favorite Kristen Wiig's performances, which is her... Do you know, remember the sec, the phone sex scene where she's like, strangle me with a dead cat? <laughs> That's Kristen Wiig, if you didn't catch that, listeners. Oh, God. And he's like, uh, uh, I'm strangling you with a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so funny uh, and so awful. Um, okay, I, ga- I gotta guess some of these. Um, you do. You do. Because thus far you've like floated a lot of like raw uh, like answers that you haven't guessed, so you still don't have any wrong answers. Uh, what about downsizing? No, not downsizing. To her, to probably her relief that yes. downsizing is not a movie remembered for her. Fine, I remember just... watching that trailer and being like, "She's gone halfway through this movie, isn't she?" Exactly. You can't fool me. Yep. Um, okay, well, fine. I'll just say Ghostbusters. Nope, not Ghostbusters. All right, All right. so your years are 2013 and 2016. And 2016 is not Ghostbusters. Correct. Is it that movie that took like four years to release with Owen Wilson? What was it called? Oh, Masterminds? No. Yes. It is okay. not Masterminds. Not that. Um, but that's the right year, so good for you. What the hell? I'm trying to think of things that she's in. She's actually not in a lot of movies. And there's no voice work. There's no voice work. Um, no. She's on the poster for the 2016 movie. She is in The Martian, but that's 2015, the year we are discussing. Correct. She's on the poster for it? The one that I'm looking at for the movie, yeah. Is it, okay, can you at least give me if it is a straight comedy or if it is one of her indie dramas? It's a straight comedy. Okay. The 2016 one is. Mm. In the year of Ghostbusters, what the hell was she in? 
it is to me a movie that doesn't exist. I don't think that's true for you because you referenced it like literally yesterday. I referenced it yesterday? Yeah. Wow. When we were talking about an actress. Was it when we were talking? What were we talking about? We recorded the last week's episode yesterday. Was. I literally can't rem- remember the movie we just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing about this podcast. So, uh-huh. okay, wait, what were we talking about? We were talking about all the pretty horses. Was it Penelope Cruz? Yeah. Penelope Cruz is in a movie with Kristen Wiig. Oh, my God. It's Zoolander 2? It's Zoolander 2. Okay, okay, hold on. I am remembering this now. Kristen Wiig is the only good thing about Zoolander 2. That's what I remember hearing, yes. She did, like, viral videos as that character, and I'm trying to remember what the punchlines were, but it was Uh so funny. But it was like you didn't have to see the movie because, like, she had these skits on YouTube that were so funny. That's Um, funny. I've never seen it. I've never seen Zoolander 2. I, I'm going to look up that and send that to you, That whatever the video is. Anyway, okay, what's cool. my other year? 2013. Okay, so post-Bridesmaids. Yes. I will tell you, this is oh, a movie boy. we could conceivably do for this head Oscar buzz. It is a absolutely had buzz, absolutely played festivals, or at least a festival. That's where I saw it. Mm. Um, and it did not, <laughs> decidedly did not catch fire. That's before you were going to TIFF. Right. So it would have had to have been New York Festival. Right. I'm, dedu- I'm deducing the IMDb game yes. through your life. Okay, this is what we've come to. Um, oh, Jesus. Oh, God. We are the first people to mention this movie in years. It is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. It is. We are not the first to mention it in years because every third person who looks at that Where Did You Go Bernadette trailer is like, it reminds me of the Walter Mitty trailer, which really? it kind of does. It, it reminds me of it, at least. Hmm. That's part of that's my main concern with that one trailer. I was just like, why, I keep, why do I keep thinking of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? And I think it might be because Kristen Wiig is in it. Yeah. That trailer for Walter Mitty, by the way, was so great. Do you remember it was with that Monsters and Men song? Yes, and it was, and like, it was very... like, what is this movie? Like, it, but it's I, selling I thought it was a very interesting trailer. And then the movie itself was just like, really, really did not, did not happen. Right, right, right. Sigh. All right, well done. All right, well done. Um, that, I believe, is our episode on truth. Joseph, do you have any final notes on the 2015 Oscar year or the movie Truth? Tell the truth. That's my... Will Tell Smith the truth. That's the same year. Concussion is the same year. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. They should have done a joint promo campaign of Will Smith <laughs> being like, Tell the truth, and Kate Blanchett being like, You get a concussion. I don't know. <laughs> Um, yeah. I guess that's our episode. Truth. It is. It's much better than its response would tell you. But it's also ultimately just fine. Start you, showing it on cable. That's what I will say. HBO. On non-Viacom channels. HBO, yeah. Like, go for it. Or, like, um, 
MSNBC. I don't know. Whatever. I don't care. Just show it. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, tell our listeners where they can find more of you. All right. You can go to Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. You can go to Letterboxd, where I'm also there as Joe Reed, R-E-I-D. You can also find me on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. I'm also on Letterboxd under the same name. And I write regularly for The Film Experience. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please, please, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please be our forensic signature experts and confirm how much you love us to more listeners and please also since we have the mailbag episode coming up send us your questions to our twitter at hat underscore oscar underscore buzz or you can also email us at hat oscar buzz at gmail that's all for this week and we hope you come back for next next week for more buzz and more truth Courage. 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 Truth, courage, beauty, love. Face. Moulin Rouge. Face, 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 face. Face, face, face. I can face. Beauty, face. You can take. It's okay. What's my mind? Face, face. Truth, beauty, face. Truth, truth, face, face, face. Did you say truth, booty, face? Because obviously. (laughs) Beauty. Beauty. (laughs) Truth, booty, face. Work. (laughs) That's going to the end of the episode. Yeah, I think so.